Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, the euthanasia debate. And a warning, this programme does discuss death and dying. It was described by its chair as the largest parliamentary investigation into any subject ever undertaken. 21,000 people submitted their views on euthanasia and 1,000 of them spoke in person at a health select committee. But even then, the final report did not contain any recommendations. Now the issue is returning to Parliament as a member's bill. Insight investigates the push for change. Long before the New Zealand Parliament set up a select committee on euthanasia, the topic has been a lightning rod of opinion. The direct intervention to end a life instead of letting nature take its course is polarising and controversial. It was first discussed in Parliament in 1995. After her own member's bill was withdrawn by the Labour Party, Marion Street lodged a petition with almost 9,000 signatures in June 2015 to investigate New Zealanders' attitudes towards euthanasia. Some have shared their frustration at watching a loved one deteriorate. She honestly probably lost a third or probably a half of her weight. And when I picked it up, it was like picking up a, a dog, a small animal. And at that stage, I thought, yeah, this is something that has died of starvation, basically. The cancer has completely taken everything that's in her away, and she's just left almost an empty vessel. And that was horrible. Others don't believe doctors when they say they can treat pain. It was hard and brutal and life-draining. Why? Why was he allowed to suffer? People who haven't been there say, you know, well, there's no need to suffer now, you know. They're painkillers that can deal with all the pain. That is so not true. There is so much suffering and so much indignity. But is euthanasia the answer? There's been a strong reaction from the medical profession and many doctors don't want a part in it. Palliative care doctors want more resources to help those approaching the end of their lives. Various funders have taken the opportunity to underfund it because uh, it was set up in a self-funding way. I think it's something that should attract more funding. I think in the end it may actually be better to fund palliative care more rather than to fund a separate euthanasia service. David Seymour's members' bill is called the End of Life Choice Bill and was pulled from the ballot in June this year. It's set to be debated once MPs elected last month finally take their seats. I'm Alex Perrottet and in this Insight we ask people about their experiences with close family members and we hear from doctors who think palliative care isn't getting the resources it needs. Yes, we're just, uh, we're just on this kitchen now. John Marks didn't want to move home. He'd built his own house, but his wife Sonia wanted a place where the kids could run around and have animals, and she talked him into it. Um, I was quite resistant at the time, and uh, she insisted, and we, uh, we ended up selling the old house, which I loved. It was an old Elizabethan mansion that we had actually built down there in the bush. And, um, and uh, I was very proud of that. But we came up here, and uh, I've, I've, I've since come to really love it. But then doctors told Sonia Marks she had cancer, and within a few short years, she died. John remarried and was settling into a new life with his wife, Annette, when tragedy struck again. Very soon after their marriage, Annette was also diagnosed with cancer and died in very similar circumstances. 
John Mark has had to rebuild his life once again. His son has since moved back in with him and he's married once more. The farm animals also remain. Hello, why are you being so quiet? Oh, there you are. Yeah, OK. <laughs> but living through the deaths of two wives has left John with strong feelings over euthanasia. He says the care provided by nurses and doctors was superb, that he felt helpless watching Sonia when she moved home in her last weeks and he simply couldn't ease her pain. Clearly it's a difficult situation and there's nothing I could have done about it. But there was a time about three weeks before she died and she looked at me and said, uh, Johnny boy, I've had enough. Mm. Yeah. It's tough, eh? Yes, the, um, the emotion's always there, yeah. obviously. Oh, and, uh, it, it does come, yeah. come back when you talk about it. Um, but um, at that point, you feel an intense frustration mm. um, because you know the time has come. Yeah. And then it happened again you know, a few years later with Annette. Yeah. Where, and, and, and so you feel so incredibly helpless as, as both the carer and the husband to see the person you love in very you know, big pain mm. and um, deteriorating in such a horrible way mm. that you, you really would like to do something about it. With Annette, what John found was a different kind of pain. He says she felt humiliated over having people watch her deteriorate. John was in control of her morphine and says he wanted to give her one big lethal dose of it to put her out of her misery, but he couldn't. Um, but it would have been a crime and I would have been conscious of it. And um, I don't think I could have done it. Yeah, it's, and that's why I understand the doctor's dilemma. That much as I loved her, I probably couldn't have done that. In the fresh air of Auckland's Albert Park, Deborah Hall remembers how she too would have liked options to help her father as he faced terminal illness. Her father was dying of liver cancer and had earlier fought medical advice to give up during a bout of facial cancer. He had fought on at that point because he had more life to live. Ten years later, when the cancer returned, he wanted out. But there was no quick solution. But as, as he got closer to the end... It was just all so undignified, you know. I mean, I'd never seen my father naked before. Here I was having to deal with... And it's, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It was just that I knew he wouldn't have wanted me to do it. Um, the, the, the indignity of all of it and, and those last days when he was really in a coma, I suppose you would say. Um, and the doctor just kept saying, you know, it takes time, his body's shutting down. And I was kind of, but why do we have to let it shut down? Why can't we just push the off button? It's not like he's going to come back. The prominent doctor and Māori leader, Lance O'Sullivan, had a life-changing experience with one young cancer sufferer. He only found out after she died that she expressed a wish for euthanasia. He says her case was compelling, and if he knew, he would have risked his reputation and his career. I probably would have helped him. In what sense? Take it to the Netherlands or do something no, here? No, I wouldn't take it to the Netherlands. I would have assisted her dying here in New Zealand and, and faced the music. Um, if she had asked me, I almost... You know, there was a greater than uh, even chance that I would have helped her. Now, that's, some people have find that unbelievable that I would put my career on the line, but 
you have to be in the same room and trying your best in earnest to help someone and not not make a difference to their discomfort and that to realize that that's not something you want to do New Zealand does have more liberal laws around dying than many other countries. Terminally ill patients can refuse all medical treatment, including assisted nutrition and hydration. The president of End of Life Choice, Marion Street, says people should be more aware of that right, but she says it's barbaric that those who wish to die sooner have to starve themselves painfully rather than get some form of intervention. It was in response to Marion Street's petition that the Parliament set up the Health Select Committee on Euthanasia to garner the views of the country. In 2015, a Three News Read Research poll showed 71% wanted a law change to allow voluntary euthanasia following the death of campaigner Lucretia Seals. A One News Colmar Brunton poll at the same time had 75% of respondents in favour, while Research New Zealand also found 74% in favour. Those polls questioned around 1,000 people each time. During the same year, the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study asked the same question of almost 16,000 people. The result was 66% in favour of euthanasia as a legal means to end the lives of people with painful and incurable diseases. But research by Professor Emeritus David Richmond of the University of Auckland has argued there's a problem with most opinion polling questions on euthanasia. In a presentation, he said, they often ask emotive questions and often don't even use the word euthanasia, instead asking whether patients should get a peaceful death. He says many people don't understand the difference between euthanasia and good palliative care. When the Health Select Committee on Euthanasia was set up in late 2016, 21,000 people wrote in and 1,000 of them spoke personally. A researcher, Dr Jane Silloway-Smith from Every Life Research Unit, which helps people against euthanasia to tell their stories, says she was amazed that a majority of the submitters were against euthanasia. So the question on euthanasia is generally, um, if someone is suffering from a terminal illness, do you think they should have the assistance of a doctor to end their life? So it's pretty quick, pretty easy. Um, most people would answer that, yes. Like... It sounds like, of course, this person's suffering, why not? Um, but it doesn't ask you to think about what the implications of that are, what it actually is, what does euthanasia even entail? It doesn't even mention euthanasia, so some people might not necessarily click in their head when they hear the question, oh, wait, they're asking about euthanasia. So, so polling questions are a quick and dirty way of finding out what people think, but, they're, but on an issue as complex and as, as large and emotional as euthanasia, I don't think that it's a particularly good way to judge what people really think. Dr Silloway-Smith says New Zealand needs to have better conversations about euthanasia and it's not just the public who might be confused, but parliamentarians too. But the MP with his own bill now up for debate, David Seymour, is not only dismissive of the numbers of vocal opponents, but says it's desperate to put the voices of those submitters ahead of the telephone polls. Whenever New Zealanders are asked by a scientific survey by a reputable market research company, the overwhelming majority say that they are in favour of assisted dying. Uh, what I'm discounting is the statistically illiterate claims, desperate claims from opponents who know that public opinion is overwhelmingly in favour of choice and change on the assisted dying issue, uh, who cling uh, to these hopelessly statistically flawed methods of saying, well, you know, a letter-writing campaign should decide the will of New Zealanders. That's just not credible. 
David Seymour is passionate about his bill. He says it's passed the human rights test and been given the tick by the Attorney General. But there is a limitation on age, with only those over 18 eligible, and that might be open to challenge. There are clear provisions to protect a patient. It proposes a system where two doctors need to sign off on a decision to end a person's life. The individual must have only six months or less to live, or they have to be suffering from a grievous and irreversible medical condition. He vigorously defends it against criticism. What I don't have a lot of tolerance for is people who try to use the respect and expertise that the community rightly gives them、uh, to muddy the waters.、Uh, if they're really saying that your options are starve to death painfully, be palliatively sedated, commit an amateur violent suicide, or have us give us give you a little bit too much morphine,、uh, as happens in four and a half percent of deaths according to Auckland Med School research,、um, then why not allow another option?、Uh, Where the patient actually gets to take control,、uh, that seems to be ultimately what this is about. Should a person have freedom of choice at the end of their life,、uh, or should they be constrained to the options that other people would like to give them? What David Seymour is addressing there are the doctors who have lined up to oppose euthanasia: the New Zealand Medical Association, the World Medical Association, Palliative Care Nurses New Zealand, Hospice New Zealand, a group called Doctors Say No. But the New Zealand Nurses Association has issued guidelines which say euthanasia is inevitable and nurses need to prepare themselves. In June, the New Zealand Medical Journal published research on views from the profession. It found 37% of doctors and 67% of nurses either strongly or mostly agreed to legislation in favour of what it called assisted dying. 58% of doctors and 29% of nurses strongly or mostly disagreed. Again, the polarising nature of the debate was evident. Only four or five percent of doctors and nurses answered not sure. David Seymour says doctors need to get with the times.、Uh, the question is not do doctors have a role, but who has the ultimate choice? And the ultimate choice is for the patient to say, "Look, I've listened to everything you've said." I've heard all the options. Now here's what I would like to do.、Uh, that's how it should work.、Um, it's not disrespecting the role of doctors. It's just asking whose life is it ultimately. Marion Street agrees. Doctors bring professional skills to bear at a time when human beings are their most vulnerable. That is when they are sick. The doctors don't run it. I don't want a doctor who has a different world view from me, dictating to me when I might die in the event that my、uh, terminal illness prognosis、um, is is、uh, short and my death is imminent. That's not the doctor's job to make that decision. It's my decision, and it's my life and my death. And the doctor's job is to provide all the palliative. Care all of the、uh, the comfort, all of the medication that's required to reduce suffering, not to prolong it, and that's the issue. Dr. Sinead Donnelly started the online list of doctors say no, and says she's adding doctors by the day. There are currently over three hundred New Zealand doctors that have signed up. She believes patients will be left vulnerable because it will expose those people. People who are vulnerable—that's a phrase that's used a lot. But on a day-to-day, -day, you know, everyone who's sick is vulnerable. 
You know, they kind of make a joke of men who have the man flu. But in reality, like, when you have the flu, you feel pretty, you feel, you feel pretty vulnerable. You know, everyone's sick is vulnerable. And then there's degrees of that vulnerability and degrees of illness. Um, and I see how... And we don't mean to have a power differential, but we're the people who are well with the power to, you know... So there is a power differential, and those people are vulnerable. Uh, and that just opens us, opens up a risk to a coercion that's subtle, you know? And these are phrases that are trotted out, but they're real. Um, I work in general medicine here, and I'm a palliative medicine physician, and I have a holistic approach. And I know the pressures on the beds and the length of stay, and I can hear this patient who's in her 80s who doesn't want to go to a rest home. Then I hear the family, then I hear the social worker, and I can see the patient's been here for a week and we really need to move her on. She hasn't got any medical problems, so we'll have a meeting, and then we'll talk to the family. And in the end... Mrs. Brown is going to a rest home. We have convinced her that it's the right thing to do. She wanted to go home. She changed her mind. So, you know, that's not illegal. That's not unethical. But the reality is, that was coercion. <laughs> I mean, there's an element of it. I'm doing, and we're doing that because we think it's the right thing. And we do care. Dr. Donnelly says if euthanasia becomes legal, doctors shouldn't be involved at all. And it's only for those people with irremediable, irreversible conditions, which includes an awful lot of conditions. It'll have to be open to everybody. Eventually, that'll be challenged in court and it will fall down because it's depriving those people under 18 or those people who don't have an irreversible area but just have tired of life. So, yeah, I, I don't really use the word slippery slope either. For, from as, as far as I'm concerned, from the profession of medicine's point of view, from my point of view, when it's if it's legislated for... It's walking off a cliff. You're entering a new realm. Doctor, the, the role of the doctor is immediately changed. But then that brings us on to the point by the American College of Physicians and by others, like why should doctors be involved? If society wants to legislate for it, you know, create um, an, a, a technician who can do it uh, and train them. Dr Ted Hughes, a pain specialist and anaesthetist, agrees. I do believe that if society passes a referendum and decides to change a law to bring in euthanasia, then so be it. But it should not be done by doctors because doctors are there to care for patients and look after them. I think that medicine needs to step back from um, the barbarity of killing people uh, even if it's legally sanctioned. Um, for instance, in the United States, I think the use of lethal injections is suggesting that there's a medicalisation of execution that turns it into some sort of lesser thing than what it really is. I think if people want to be euthanised, then euthanised, then it should be done if society demands it. But, but I think the medical profession will be wisest to steer well clear of it. Medicine is in a, a great deal of danger if it's involved in being the part of society that kills people who want to be killed, I think that is wrong. And I think to call it anything other than killing is, is also um, beating around the bush a bit. To find out more about the last days of life, I'm at Mary Potter Hospice, where Dr Brian Ensor is about to tour me around. He says people here stay an average of 17 days. But to my surprise, as he says... Many get out alive. This hospice is about solving problems of pain and getting people back home or to their rest home for their final journey. 
So this was the original, the first inpatient hospice in yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. All the cooking and stuff, food preparations done here. There's a little oh, yeah. cafe for uh, staff and families. Um, every hospice will have a flash bath. It's one of those oh, yeah. things that are available to people that still give them enjoyment and uh, bubbles and booze and music and that sort of thing. Yeah, that need for sensuality I don't, doesn't yeah. change. Dr Brian Ensor is against euthanasia and says there's a stark difference between relieving pain and intentionally ending life. He says palliative care struggles to get the resourcing and funding it needs. He says there are expensive drugs that cost hundreds of dollars a day, but he'd be lucky to get access to them once or even twice a year. The focus on the money is certainly uh, uh, living longer and curing things, and, and that's where the energy and the money uh, goes. And sometimes uh, the care of the dying feels like a, a somewhat forgotten little subset of, of uh, medicine with our hands waving in the air saying, uh, us too, please. Because there is some really good and exciting stuff out there in medicine that we need to scavenge and bring into uh, the care of the dying. There's not so much uh, energy and money for uh, drugs that might help people in the last days of life. That is a very uh, small market. Sometimes we feel like we're uh, bound by the capitalist system, really, because we are such a small uh, market for some potentially expensive drugs. The Farm Act Director of Operations, Sarah Fitt, says they fund a wide range of medicines that can be used in palliative care, but some of the more powerful drugs can only be used in hospitals due to the level of additional care and monitoring required to use them safely. But palliative care doctors say this even causes problems in hospitals as they can't start patients on heavy painkillers because they won't be able to keep using them once they leave hospital. One of the sad things is a lot of society doesn't actually understand and there's a lot of fear about dogs out there at the moment. Um, dogs are seen as a bad thing, scary. Dr Huhana Hickey's talking about her service dog which helps her with everyday tasks that are now difficult because of her multiple sclerosis. She's an academic at AUT specialising in Māori health research. She formed the group Not Dead Yet Aotearoa to give people with disability a voice in the debate. She's concerned about the underlying message euthanasia carries, that some lives, because of pain, are not worth living. She says pain is part and parcel of her life. Online, where people make comments like, oh, I don't want anyone wiping my bum, you know, one day, or being dependent feeding me, that's appalling. I think about it and I think, my gosh, you know, you're telling me, as a disabled person, where some of us have our bums wiped, we're fed, we're cared for, that we are a burden, that we are suffering, and we have no place in this world. And that's actually the issue. We can get a motive about the right to die, the right to live, and look at it from suffering and pain angles, but when we do that, we're not looking at it in a more logical way. And what we need to be looking at is why do people want to end their lives? Why are people? afraid of pain? Why do people assume suffering onto another person that when someone experiences pain that they would want to die? Um, when many disabled live with a lot of pain, a lot of barriers, a lot of struggle, we don't want to die. She says people can react adversely to their diagnosis 
and need more support. People react to a diagnosis and um, I think that's where a lot of the time they react to fear, fear of pain. But when you've lived with it for 30 years, you know pain, it becomes intimate. Dr Mark Donaldson is an ophthalmologist and says he's often confronted by patients who say they'd rather die than lose their sight and he has to talk them around. It's very clear to me what my role is. I'm, I'm a healer, that's what I'm here for, I'm trying to help people. And I, I can diagnose and I can explain, I can outline treatment options and I can ameliorate some of the consequences of visual loss that they may have already suffered and I have access to support groups. So I go on in the conversation from where they are stuck with their crisis and put forward the next thing on the horizon point towards the future for them and what the options are and um, give hope, I guess. But are many afraid of people caring for them and being vulnerable and in someone else's hands? Dr Angela Ballantyne teaches medical ethics at Otago University. She says we need to explore why we're afraid of losing our dignity and having others care for us. I also think there's a real thing about kind of Western society, um, that emphasises being self-sufficient and independent um, in a way that's sometimes unhelpful. So again, if I think about myself and about family members or friends that have been sick or in need, often i found that they will refuse offers of help or decline offers of help um, because they want to be self-sufficient or they don't want to feel like they're indebted or burdened to someone. But on the other end of that, when I'm offering, I actually find the highest burden for me is when they won't let me help. You know what I mean? When you want to participate and you want to do something but you feel like you're stuck on the sidelines um, and actually on the occasions when people have turned around and said, you know, actually, yes, you could do my ironing, you know, for me or you could do, you know, other, you know, more substantive um, commitments. Um, that's been great for me. That really felt like a gift of letting me participate um, and we know that acting altruistically makes people happier um, and it strengthens connections in a way that's really important. So I think this whole concept of burden at the end of life really requires more reflection. Dr Ballantyne is a supporter of euthanasia. She says the proposed law has clear boundaries and it's a prudent step forward and New Zealanders need to trust their future selves if there are moves to broaden any legislation later on. So without a doubt, if we introduced a euthanasia system, um, there would be people who slipped through those loopholes. But I think, it's so, I think for me that's true and we need to own up to that. But also the whole debate about whether we could perfect a system, I think, is the wrong debate. So we should be having a debate about um, can we minimise the risks in the system? Uh, once we've minimised them as much as possible, are those risks proportional to the amount of benefit we think we're going to get? And then, for me, a big question is, and would the risks and benefits be distributed fairly across the population? So that's a much more kind of nuanced debate. To get a unique perspective, I spoke to Jeffrey Davitz, a Californian man who had brainstem cancer and would have chosen euthanasia, but it hadn't come into effect yet in his state. Since then, he had a miracle recovery and is enjoying life. He's still in favour of the right to choose, but he's far more circumspect. But I think people on either side of the issue who want to make it so cut and dry are kidding themselves. I think that just whatever, whatever is going to happen, mistakes will be made, there will be suffering, there will be cracks that things fall through. And I think that, that that will be the case no matter what decision you make. Deborah Hall, who lost her father to cancer and her mother-in-law to dementia, 
says there's nothing easy about death, whether it comes naturally or possibly in the future through euthanasia. We don't accept death as part of the progression of life. Um, it's like this big scary thing that's waiting out there that we're trying to avoid at all costs. And, you know, there are worse things than dying. I'm Alex Perrottet and that's Insight for this week. You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz forward slash insight or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That program was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by William Saunders. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. Great to have you with us and thanks for listening.